0: Hi there, this is Matt Wakeling and you're listening to the Guitar Speak Podcast. This is the show I produce in Sydney, Australia, where I speak with leading guitarists and guitar figures from all around the world. Thank you so much for joining me for episode number 123. Now today we welcome back US author Ian S. Port. Now Ian joined us for the Stratocaster 65th anniversary special edition just a couple of episodes ago and he joins us to speak in a bit more detail today about his wonderful book the birth of loud leo fender les paul and the guitar pioneering rivalry that shaped rock and roll it's a fantastic book i loved reading it learned so much and uh had a great time talking to ian about it as well so let's jump straight into the conversation ian esport welcome back to the guitar speak podcast
1: Thank you. Thanks for
0: having me. Great to have you back. We loved uh, having you on our Stratocaster special um, podcast and and great to have you to talk about your book in in its fuller context. And the book, of course, is The Birth of Loud, Leo Fender Les Paul and the Guitar Pioneering Rivalry, that Shaped Rock and Roll. So that book was launched in, I believe, January this year, 2019. And we're on the edge of the paperback being uh, released in November, around the 19th, I believe. Yep, that's right. That's awesome. Congratulations on the, on the second printing. Thank you very much. Thank you. Now, Ian, before we talk about the book, can I get a bit of your backstory? I understand you've been playing guitar pretty much all your life and uh, grew up in California. Um, these days you're located in, in, in New York. Let's, um, let's talk guitars first. When did you start playing and what, what inspired that?
1: Um, it was funny. I started playing when I was 10 years old and you know i kind of grew up in a sort of musical family my dad was into music his parents were into music there was music everywhere and uh you know i mean when you're 10 years old and you grew up listening to rock and roll obviously it's pretty fun to the idea of picking up an electric guitar so i started out with that my first my first guitar was a pv predator um like a pv stratocaster yeah
0: kind of yeah yeah i remember those
1: yeah, and it's actually I still have it. It's a pretty pretty great little guitar. I think we paid like two hundred and fifty bucks for it or something
0: new. Yeah. It was nice. Yeah. And um and what about the writing career? Because you've you've um I should back up. You've uh, you're in New York now, uh but you've been in California. You've written for Rolling Stone, The Village Voice, you were the music editor at the San Francisco Weekly. Um, now high selling uh book author. What's how did you stumble into writing?
1: Um, you know, writing again was just something that always interested me. I was always a reader um, and I loved writing about music from an early age. You know, I wrote music reviews for my high school paper, for my college paper. I started freelancing as a music journalist in college and just kind of kept up with it, you know, kind of wandering in and out doing newspaper journalism and then ended up, um, doing full-time, uh, music editing later on and freelancing. And it's just, you know, it's kind of my, I would say, even maybe my core passion, um, writing and music. Those are the things I love. So, it's what I've been doing.
0: Fantastic. What a good combination. And obviously, very much the focus of, um, of your latest work, The Birth of Loud. Um, is this your first book, Ant? Eh? It is, yeah. Wow, well done. Well, it's been so well received. There's been some excellent uh, critical reviews across um, lots of different agencies. What What inspired you to write it? You know, when I was... on. Um, writing about
1: music in san francisco i was going to shows like you know three or four nights a week and and just hanging out with musicians and you know as a guitar player like i understood a little bit about the story of leo fender and les paul i kind of knew a little bit but then just like seeing the kind of importance that instrument that musicians kind of the the importance that musicians imbue their instruments with you know just like how much they value that and how much it contributed to their art making and what it allowed them to do and how they felt about it. I just felt like the story was maybe richer than I think people, the broader public had appreciated. And I was so fascinated as I looked into it more by just the characters of Leo Fender and Les Paul and just how different they were. Um, But at the same time, sort of how similar uh, and just the incredible arc that they had. And, And it was just like, I just saw it kind of pretty quickly, like, "Wow, this is this could be a really cool story," both from the standpoint of music and guitars, but also just kind of, you know, from the standpoint of an American life and and what it means to kind of be a success and innovate and create and, and that sort of stuff.
0: Definitely, yeah, yeah. Um, what what sort of research goes into it? Like, how long does it take you to research and then write a book of this stature? <laughs> It
1: takes a really, really long time. <laughs> <laughs> um, it took me about three years to do the book. Okay. Um, and, and like, so, you know, the research was pretty intense. There were lots of, um, I traveled all over the United States to different cities, interviewing people, going to archives. I did archival research at the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, where Les Paul's papers are. And I went through many, many file boxes of his life's papers. Oh, wow. Um, got access to some like the kind of best surviving trove of documents from the Fender company, which are in the possession of a really great guy and the preeminent Fender historian in the world and Richard Smith, um, who who lives in in California and who's the author of a great book on the history of Fender himself. And he's kind of the definitive source, um, but he helped me do a lot of the research just by sort of loaning me some of his files. And then I went and talked to, You know, everyone else who was alive, everyone else who was related to anyone who was alive then, um, and of course read like about a hundred books to put it all together.
0: Wow, that's amazing. That's amazing. I noticed you you spoke to um, uh, Phyllis Fender, Leo's surviving um, second wife, who was uh, definitely was around for a long long time towards the back of uh, Leo's career. That must have been a trip speaking to her.
1: It was. It was such a pleasure to see, to hear about Leo Fender from her perspective, you know, because when she met Leo, he was kind of already like this vaunted figure, you know, he was already, had already been a huge success. And she met him as just like, you know, kind of a regular guy um, and and a sweetheart. And it was really fun to hear about that.
0: Very cool. Earlier, you, you mentioned about the richness of the human story in this. And that, that was for me, one of the, one of the thrills about reading the book. And you actually—it's like you read my mind for one of my questions. You said that Leo and Les—they were very different but very similar—and that—that's very immediate when you read the book.
1: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think in in the most sort of fundamental way, um, you know, Leo and Les were six years apart in life. Um, they both kind of came of age during the Depression. They were both um, incredibly obsessive incredibly hardworking people who had what I came to learn was sort of a mentality that people had had gained in the Great Depression, which was, I think of it as what they call like no self imposed limitations, like neither of them would believe that there was, they would never tell themselves there was anything they couldn't do. So that's kind of how like you get Leo Fender building an amplifier line, building a guitar line in the back of a radio shop when he has no idea how to play guitar (laughs) and has one eye and like really is just like, you know, borrowing money, hiding from his creditors, you know, his wife is supporting him. His wife is paying his employees, like doing the most crazy things just because he believed that he could do them. And of course he worked very hard to pull them off. Um, And the way that they were different is so striking, too, because, you know, Leo was a backroom kind of innovator. He was a tinkerer. He was, you know, what today we would call kind of a nerd who just wanted to kind of engineer. He wanted to build stuff because he was so good at it and loved it. Um, Whereas Les Paul was like this guy who had been a performer from the time he was like eight years old, you know, joking and playing the harmonica for his school classmates. Um, You know, he dropped out of high school. To become a professional musician on the radio, making a really great salary at a time when you know most people didn't have a job in America—or not most people, but you know at the height of yeah, the depression—and sure. um, so Les was public. You know, he wanted to be—he wanted to be lauded. He wanted to be on stage. He wanted the applause. Um, and so they were so different in that way, and yet you know they were both obsessed with sound, both so hardworking, and it ended up kind of putting them on this parallel path.
0: I had no idea that they actually knew each other and had had a friendship, had a relationship. Yeah, I
1: mean, that was one of the big that was kind of a huge aha moment for me when I when I sort of found that out. And, you know, it was a hard thing to illuminate because you saw the people on both sides kind of reference this relationship. Um, And of course, Les talked about it. And, you know, you have kind of evidence and, and different accounts of how these meetings went down. But they did know each other. You know, Les had his Um, his backyard studio in Hollywood in the late 40s. and, And that studio was like a magnet for every kind of musician and then every sort of electronics tinkerer in LA or in Southern California at the time. And, and Les was hanging out with, you know, country-western musicians, and those same country-western musicians were getting pitched by Leo Fender to use his amplifiers, his very early amplifiers. And so it was only really a matter of time before Leo Fender showed up at Les Paul's house, and the two of them, you know, started talking.
0: You describe an arms race to electrify the guitar, and Paul Bigsby is an, also an interesting figure in this, in this race. What was the need for the amplification, and how... Um... How does Bigsby fe- feature in this as well? Sure. So
1: <clears throat> one of the important things to understand is like at the time period we're talking here, just after World War II, there's been this huge social upheaval and everyone is in a different part of the country from where they usually are. And they're suddenly coming into like finding out about different kinds of music. Um, and music is just getting louder. The venues are getting bigger. Um, music is becoming more focused on kind of rhythm and the low end, the drums, the drums, um and you know electric guitars just like couldn't keep up with that at that point i mean the electric guitar had been on the market you know since gibson's first one came out in about 1937 but they were basically amplified acoustic guitars and they just couldn't really match the kind of louder more dance hall kind of sound that music was going in especially in southern california so you know you have this huge kind of country western western swing situation happening in in los angeles and one of the people who's there besides leo fender and les paul is a guy named paul Bigsby, who is a little bit older than both of them he's like this really tall kind of burly voice <laughs> cigarette smoking guy who's just like an incredible craftsman like he can build anything he designs um patterns that could be used for engine parts for submarine sides for whatever they want and he is a passionate country western player, although he's not a pro and a fan who's friends with many of the big players on the scene. So Paul Bigsby kind of starts putting his engineer, his design and sort of craftsman mind toward building better steel guitars for musicians. And then eventually he builds this kind of prototype solid body standard electric guitar for a guy named Merle Travis that ends up really kind of becoming a breakthrough in the history of the instrument.
0: There's some controversy around that guitar built for Travis and Leo Fender's access to the guitar and the influence on on Fender's work. Could you speak into that?
1: So what we know is that in May 1948, Paul Bigsby gives this guitar that he's custom built to Merle Travis. Sometime around then, Leo Fender sees Merle Travis playing this guitar and asks to borrow it and Merle Travis gives it to him for a week, and Leo gives it back. And then some period after that, Leo comes up with the prototype for the Telecaster, probably that same year, but certainly by the following year, and it looks very, very much like Bigsby's Merle Travis guitar. Now, it's made of different materials, it's much less fancy, Um, you know, it's, it's sort of more cheaply put together. It's not this beautiful creation, but the dimensions are similar. The pickup arrangement is similar. The knobs are a little bit similar. And so there's a real sense. And I think an accurate one that Leo borrowed a lot from Paul Bigsby's Merle Travis guitar when he started designing the Telecaster. And that's a controversial thought because, you know, Fender, I think is rightly credited with having introduced the commercial solid body electric guitar a couple years later. Um, But Bigsby, uh, you know, attested to this, certainly Merle Travis attested to this, even Leo Fender's own assistants, like George Fullerton, attested to the fact that Leo saw that guitar and that it influenced
0: him. You you mentioned George Fullerton there. Another aspect of the book I loved was finding out more about these names, which I had always known the names, people like George Fullerton, uh, Bill uh, Carson, Freddie Tavares. I knew a little of their story, but not much, but you really humanize these names that many of us have a fleeting recollection of
1: yeah that was a really fun part of the story and to see like how this kind of you know leo fender kind of developed almost like this this circle of, of friends and admirers and and he called them his guinea pigs and people who would say hey leo why don't you move the knob over here why don't you sand this part down a little bit or like can you get a fourth pickup on there you know and they would ask leo for stuff and then there are people like George Fullerton, who was Leo's kind of right-hand man, who, you know, like, Leo Fender couldn't play guitar, so he kind of de- dep- depended on George Fullerton, who could play, to kind of tell him, you know, oh, you should make it feel like this, it should, you know, kind of fit this scale a little bit. So Fullerton really did a lot of the early drawings for the Telecaster, um, and helped with Leo's project kind of throughout his entire life. Liz
0: Paul, Now, there's a complicated figure.
1: Yeah, I think that's fair to say. I mean, you know, Les was tinkering up with the uh, pickups and inventions up until the day he died and he never really stopped. I mean, he was a guy who thought he he was kind of both front of stage and sort of back of stage, right? He wanted to be up there, he wanted to be in front of the crowd. He wanted everyone to know how great he was, how funny he was, what a great guitarist he was. Um, And at the same time, you know, (laughs) he wanted to pioneer multi-track recording, which is some huge debt that we owe to Les. Um, And he wanted to you know, develop a solid body electric guitar when Gibson had told him that it wasn't interested. Um, he went and, and sort of modified these Epiphone's himself so that they would get the kind of sustaining, um, purely electric sound, because he thought that that would make him stand out as a performer. So he was kind of an amazing guy in that sense of just like, he had such a rare combination of of charm and incredible musical talent, and also just like technical know-how and an absolutely tireless work ethic
0: both companies fender and gibson um passed hands through through different owners they've both had low times um and they've both risen at at different periods as well um you you detail this in 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 some some length in the book what's what's your take on those companies where they stand now yeah it's a great question i mean i
1: think um obviously you know gibson has had a bit of a rough time of late you know going through the the bankruptcy proceedings last year um, i want to think that they're kind of finding their way and I, I i sort of feel good about where they're going and what i'm seeing i'm curious to sort of you know hear what the other what other people think about that but my sense is that i you know to be honest i haven't played a ton of the brand new gibson so i can't say how they speak up to or how they you know sort of stand up to the the you know, the heights of the 90s or the aughts or whatever we uh, want to say are the best Gibsons. Um, And I think that, you know, when I look at kind of Fender's product line and their marketing and just sort of the kind of penetration that they seem to have in the culture, I feel like, you know, in what has become a very tough climate, at least in the United States for the electric guitar, Fender has kind of figured it out a little bit. I mean, they've kind of managed to brand themselves as being, Sort of genre uh, agnostic, um, and they're not just you know the company of like white rock dudes anymore. I think they're doing a good job of, of presenting themselves as being for everyone, no matter what kind of music they play, what kind of they, what kind of um, you know genre they want to play in. And so, I, I think Fender's probably doing a little bit better right now, but I think Gibson could get there.
0: Yeah, exciting times, exciting times for for both oh, companies. Yeah. And, uh, yeah, I loved it how you, I mean, the, a, a large focus of your book is, of course, what's on the cover, the Les Paul, Leo Fender. But then you, you continue on with the stories of the companies and, and Leo and, and Les Paul as they continued in other areas too, which was, which was really cool. So the, the book itself, Ian, um, that goes to paperback in November, as we said earlier. That must be an exciting period for you. Heading up onto uh, on that launch after the initial launch in January.
1: Yeah, it's great to see. I hope it gets out there, and I hope you know the paperback makes it more accessible
0: to people. Awesome, awesome. And do you have any uh, other plans for future future books? I
1: do. I'm working on another project right now. I can't talk about it yet because it's a superstition of mine. It's a writer superstition, but uh, <laughs> it's going to be another interesting story. Let's put it that way.
0: Okay. Are there any guitars involved? Can I ask that?
1: Um, I can't. I'm. I'm. I'm going to say nothing at this point.
0: Okay.
1: <laughs> <laughs> I gotta. I, well, I, I gotta protect my delicate writer sensibilities.
0: All right. All right. I'll. I'll respect that special space. But um, <laughs> please shoot me an email when you can, or I'll keep. I'll keep my eye on your, on your. Uh, your website, which is really cool, and um, I think you got a cool Facebook page too, as well, where you talk about what you can when you can.
1: Yeah. All right. Thanks, fan. I appreciate it.
0: No worries. And uh, it's been great to meet you. And again, I love the book and um, really fun to to talk to you and find out more about you and um, a bit more about the process of writing The Birth of Loud.
1: Yeah, I'm so glad you like the book. Thank you. I really appreciate you having me on.
0: All right, there you go. My conversation with Ian S. Port. Please check out his book, The Birth of Loud. There'll be links in our show notes for you to do just that. Thank you so much for joining me. You've been listening to the Guitar Speak podcast. My name's Matt Wakeling, and I'll catch you next time. Bye now.